We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at Everyday Savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. What is up? I'm Alan Williams. Glad to be back. Sitting right across, you know who he is. It's James Virgilio. James, what is up? Are you excited about this podcast? I am. Let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to get you ready for everything you need to know to feel like you're totally prepared as a fan for this season. And we're going to preview the Miami game. What do you need to know about these crazy canes? Are we going to win? We'll talk all about it. James, I'm amped. I'm looking at your face. You're amped too. Let's do this. I'm amped and I'm thinking about how sad JT Raymond and Tyler Rummery must be that you are back in your seat. They came hard for you. They they made multiple attempts during the podcast, after the podcast, to take your seat and you're thrown, but you are back. If Alan you come Williams. at the king, best not miss. I have both of them assassinated. You are back. I flew in from Milan last night for this podcast. I'm here. I'm kind of ready. I'm going to lean on you, Alan, for player personnel and other things. Don't worry, fans of the program. I think every year I say on the first episode, this will be my worst episode because I do rely heavily on breaking down film and the X's and O's of what's going on. We've got all kinds of good stuff for you. First up, as always, if any of you had an over-under game of how many times I was going to say dono on this episode, you can start counting now. That's one. Don't start uh, drinking that. If you like our content, 
if you enjoy the show, if you like Alan's Golden Pipes or you like the content that we give you, like us on Facebook or become a patron on Patreon. We love our patrons. We have a couple new patrons. Uh, Peter Gilliart, or maybe Gilarte, not sure. I do love to accidentally butcher people's names. My last name is DeVirgilio. I'm used to it, Peter. Thanks for coming on. And Daniel Preston, thanks for coming on. Still the king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal. You too can become a supporter of the show. All you have to do is follow us on any social media link. Get to Patreon, give a couple of bucks, and we will announce you on this very show. Without further ado, let's get into some meta questions on the program, Alan. We'll break the team down personnel-wise. We'll discuss the Miami game, and then we will discuss our overall season record. A lot of good stuff on this episode today. Let's jump right on in. Alan, talk to us about the state of of the Gator Nation, the state of the program. It's been a very busy offseason for us. We've, we've chronicled it month by month, but here we are on the precipice, state of the Gator Nation. I love this. I love starting the season here, a little state of the union. I feel like the state of the program is really solid. Now, there's been a lot of noise in the system, I think especially amongst national media. We've had some players dismissed, people not qualify academically, a little bit of turbulence, some injuries at key positions, but I think overall the program is in really solid footing. It doesn't feel like it has in the past under Muschamp or McElwain when you walked into a season, you weren't sure, are we going to go 11-1? Are we going to go 4-8? and eight? It doesn't feel like we're going to take those swings. Now, we've talked a lot about can we reach the mountaintop, still to be seen, but it feels like the program is really solid under Mullen and his staff, a lot of staff continuity, uh, and it feels like Gator Nation is confident. Maybe not that we're going to go out and beat everyone this year, but we're not going to fall on our face. And I, there's something to that after the previous decade of Gator football. What about you? What would you say about the state of the program? Yeah, having done this podcast through a lot of tumultuous seasons, this is the first year where we can say, I think truly that we know what to expect. I actually know heavily like what I expect this team to do, what they expect to, to play like on both sides of the ball, where I think our strengths and weaknesses will be. And that's nice. Being predictable means that, that you're accurate, you're consistent. And that has certainly not been the case. And so I think that uh, hats off to Dan Mullen for putting us in this kind of position. Uh, certainly, I think we've said this many times, and I'll continue to say this. I think sometimes on Reddit threads, you Reddit people out there, you know who you are. Uh, we love you and we love your kind comments. I get I get sort of a rap that like I won't admit when I'm wrong, but I wanted to just say right on the opening show here um, that I think I have been wrong about Dan Mullins. Uh, maybe we'll call it his floor level. We said it'd be high, but I think his floor level is probably even higher than I thought it would be. I still don't think I'm wrong on the ceiling level yet because that's yet to be proven, like we said. And that's not detracting from him at all. That's just the final question that has to be answered. And we'll find out if we can beat the elite teams in due time. But certainly where the program is coming into the season ranked number eight. Uh, and that's a real ranking, I think. It's not too far off. We finished last year number seven, right? Uh, is is a huge and tremendous feather in his cap. Because if we had Jim McElwain, I don't think you or I would think we're ranked number eight coming into the season. It would be a smoke and mirrors ranking. Right. It would not. We wouldn't have finished the way we finished last year. And that's all coaching. So great job there. I'm excited about this season, about this game this week. Is the place in the poll, though, is number eight, is that right for you? Is it too high or too low? How do you feel about that? It feels pretty accurate. There's a game that a lot of people like to play. You say any team in their number, they go, oh, they're so overrated. 
Well, okay, tell me the teams that you would put above that team. And I think you could mess around there, you know, anywhere from 7 to 12 or 13 with the AP poll. Sure, if we were ranked 7th or we ranked 12th, I don't, I wouldn't get up in arms about it. If you put us in the top five, you'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. And if we're in the 20s, that would feel too low. I, It's pretty accurate. Now, what I've liked that the AP voters have done, I think, fairly accurate this year is what is the strength of the team and not necessarily I'm going to pr- try and predict how many losses they're going to have at the end of the season, which is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like they have Texas A&M at 12, I believe. I think Texas A&M might be the 12th best team in the country. They could be better. They they have an incredibly brutal schedule. So I think you know at this point, if you're assessing a team strength, I think we're about the eighth best team in the country. That feels pretty accurate to me. Yeah, I think I like to look at the tiers like we talked about, right? And let's go tier tier one, Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia. Tier one, right? For sure. I think that's pretty clear. I think Oklahoma is tier two. I'm gonna I'm gonna put them as number one tier two team. I think they have Jalen Hurts. I think we know he's limited passing. Uh very, very good, but tier two. Ohio State's right there with them, tier two. LSU becomes tier three to me. Always questionable with that Orgeron, although I think they have reason to be optimistic. Michigan and then us. Michigan's a is an interesting one again. Harbaugh obviously has not delivered. New offensive coordinator there. And they have some some changes going on. But I think it's safe to say that Michigan's gonna fall with LSU, us, Notre Dame. And Texas, I think I draw that line there. So like you said, I think that's where Florida is. After that, you go to Oregon, A&M, Washington, Utah, Penn State, Auburn. More question marks there. I think that we're definitely ahead of them. And so I think this is a correct slotting. It doesn't really matter anyway, but it's pretty logical. It makes good sense. I think we're tier three, uh, and there's teams ahead of our tiers. And that becomes the real question is, can we beat this season the teams ahead of us? And, and we will certainly get a chance by playing Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we may get a chance by playing you know, in Alabama or one of those teams down the road. But regardless, that's that's a nice kind of look at where we are. So eight also feels good. So with that being said, the schedule we have in front of us, which we will talk about at length, what is a successful season to you? Vegas has us at nine wins. Now, this could mean anything to you. It's not just a win-loss situation. But if we record a podcast, which we will at the end of the season, I'll ask you the same question. What is success versus not success? Of course, there's got to be a certain win total to this. Uh, we're above a just, we played hard and we are competitive. We're rebuilding. That's not the place this program is right now. There's a lot of factors that could play into what our win loss record actually is. You know, I think eight wins could be successful depending on what those eight wins are and what happens during the season. But I would say nine wins feels closer to that. And are we competitive in our biggest games? Are we competitive against Georgia, LSU, we're getting blown out in those games, which we didn't last year, obviously. Um, we were competitive. I expect us to be competitive in these games this year as well. Then that would be successful for me. I, I'm, I don't need an 11-win, 12-win season to consider success. I don't think we're there as a program. I think that's a possibility. I don't think it's a strong one. But that shows you where the program is at as well, is that I'm willing to entertain us winning 11 games where certain years in the last five would have been crazy to suggest that yeah i think you have to win at least nine barring like a catastrophic all our quarterbacks gainable injured apocalypse yeah but outside of a true apocalypse which means you're gonna have starters injured that's expected uh that's normal not a problem 
a true apocalyptic situation, you have to win nine, given the schedule that we have. We are better than a large majority of teams on our schedule. If our coaching staff is what most people think it is, one of the better game management, week-to-week progression-oriented staffs there is, and you got to win nine. So I think right there you go nine, and then you look at where you are, nine, 10, 11, maybe eight, uh, and you look at how the season went, what the games looked like, what the style of play looked like, to determine whether or not you were successful. And I think that's the key. We've talked about this at length on this show. For me, how we get the wins and what it looks like is more important to me than actually getting the wins at the end of a season for evaluation purposes. If I am Scott Strickland and I am I am looking at the Gators, uh, I want to know at the end of the season, did we progress based upon the things I can view and observe beyond just wins and losses? Are we better now than we were at the beginning of the season? Right. I mean, Jim McElwain won 10 games twice, essentially. I mean, he had one taken away by weather. But no one was feeling confident. Even you know, you look at the Muschamp 2012 thing, I think it's a great example of this. Won a lot of games, a lot of them were close. Now, again, that was a talented team, very good defense, capable of beating almost anybody, but huge flaws. I don't think this team has huge flaws. That's why we're more confident in it. So you do want to see some style versus substance. Too. It's not just a bottom line thing because the heights that we're trying to get to, you won't get there by playing a floor strategy with this roster and with this coaching staff. So we'll see. We'll get to the end and we'll go successful or not. I think there's a lot of things factoring in on that. The guy that everybody wants to talk about all offseason into the season, one Felipe Franks. James, he's right, his stock is a little high right now. It's moving up. People have been buying it at the end of last season. People, Mullen said today that he had made huge strides this offseason. His improvement and development was much higher than it was the previous offseason. Let me ask you this very particular question. I'm going to skip that first one and say, are you buying or selling Felipe Frank's stock at this current price? I'm buying it, and here's the reason why. There's a simple narrative here. If Felipe Franks is, in fact, a stock, and he is, in fact, going to be good, this is the last time to buy the stock before the value significantly jumps. If you wait until after the Miami game and he has a great game, that stock is going to go stratospheric. If you wait a couple of games and he's kind of average and it's a big game, that stock is going to go stratospheric. So if you think at all there's a chance for Felipe Franks to deliver on what Dan Mullen says to finish or start the way he finished last year, now is the time to buy. I'm going to stick with Dan Mullen's track record of developing quarterbacks, of putting them in good situations to give Felipe Franks the buy signal. It's hard to imagine a scenario where Felipe Franks is worse than what we got last year. So with that being said, Alan, that means the worst case scenario is Felipe Franks' stock price was where it was last year, which means minimal loss for me, right? And I have a lot of upside on the, on the gain. So I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a purchase here. I don't think there's a lot of risk on the downside with Felipe. There are questions that he will need to answer, which we're going to talk about. But certainly it's safe to say that no one's stock has risen more than Felipe Franks' stock has risen in the past six months. I don't think there's a single college football quarterback who's had a stock go higher than his. He went from... I'm benched and not going to play to I'm now back in because we've got a broken foot situation to winning the team's confidence back to now becoming like a guy that a lot of people are putting on preseason mags as like a, as like a potential emerging star. Yeah. That's interesting that to hear you say that you would still buy it. I love that rationale. I thought you were going to say sell. I, people have gone back and forth of this. You look at his stats, his completion percentage, like, 
even if you just broke down each throw he made in those last four games, South Carolina on through Michigan, there's a lot to like. Now, you could jump back on the other side and say, is South Carolina really good? You got Idaho in there. Florida State was falling apart. Michigan, it's a bowl game. Plus, they're missing a few of their key players. I am on the side of I want to buy some stock, too. I like what you said. I think it's going to go higher. I think he's poised to have a potentially really great season. Now, again, those four games could be a little bit of small sample size. That was too optimistic. But I don't think he's going to be where he was at the beginning of last year. So I think, if anything, it's going to hold steady. Um, I like his development over the course of the year. I think he got way better. And I'm confident in Mullen's ability to continue to get improvement out of him. And so... If we're going to see his stock go up, what would that mean? Like, what what do you need to see from him to show you that he's improving? And I think this is the real question. So I said I'd buy his stock based upon right the the sort of high and low of what it could be and what it may be. What do I think of him coming into this season? Well, one, it's the most excited I've been about his development, and I haven't seen any of it because I'm I'm putting some faith in Dan Mullen. But two, there are many many questions that will need to be answered for me. I don't put any stock in quarterback and quarterbacks and their coaching relationship before, before the season starts because coaches glow about their quarterbacks. Pick Certainly. any starting quarterback right now, including Miami's, who's played zero basically snaps. He's played three total snaps, and you're going to get these great glowing remarks. What a what a savant he is! All the offseason work he's done, and then four games in, the guy's bench never to be seen again. Right? So don't buy into that. Number one. Number two. Even with Dan Mullen being the guy he is, don't buy into that. He has to support his quarterback publicly. And number three, there are things we're going to find out very quickly, Alan, with regards to how much Felipe Franks has progressed. Let's break down a couple of these right now. One, how well does Felipe Franks read the field before the snap? It's been well chronicled by us that he has routinely missed that. He definitely got better as the season went on last year. But in my opinion, having watched that film, and I know others disagree, a large majority of that was that he was able to very easily make his first or second read because of vastly inferior defenses. In the case of Michigan, a team that was wholly and entirely unmotivated to play physically, that will not be the case this weekend. So against Miami, can he progress past a first read into a second read? Can he get an accurate pre-snap read of which side of the field he should be looking at? Those two things are crucial. And then the elephant in the room is, can he complete a deep ball? He has one of the best arms in all of college football. He's an NFL arm. He's a high-level guy. He's a guy that at this season he can put he competes well. The NFL will look at him. But can he complete a deep ball? Can we complete some deep passes? And obviously, this was a huge point of emphasis, Allen, because in the spring game, they scripted it for him to complete multiple deep passes. This will not be scripted. He will not get an easy two-on-one read. So can he command the huddle? Can he get into pass protection? Those things we know he can do. He did them last year. He can do the automatic stuff now. But all of the stuff that makes you a really good quarterback has yet to be proven by Felipe Franks. This game is going to tell us, I think, right out of the gate where he is because Miami is going to play a very solid, organized defense. They're good up front. They're going to pressure him. We have questions on our offensive line. Uh, They're not going to play a a vanilla scheme on defense. They're going to mix things up pre and post snap. This will challenge his brain. This will challenge what makes a great quarterback versus what makes just a guy who's a game manager. So I think we're going to know what his stock looks like after this game. I really think it's safe to say that. Of course, he'll get better or worse as the season goes on. But for me, 
we need to see how well he does the things that have been his Achilles heel the previous couple of years here at Florida. And if Dan Mullen is as good as some of you think he is, as I hope he is, then we're going to see this on display against a very good defense. And if that's the case, Alan, then you can begin to indulge yourself in fantasies of what Florida could look like. Uh, because keep in mind, as much as you may think Felipe Franks is a hero right now, this guy has barely ever thrown for more than 200 yards in really any game against real competition. That's true. Still a lot to prove. I think what people liked from him, he cut down on a lot of his miscues. You know, only threw six interceptions the entire year and none over those last four games, I believe. So this is an anecdote. This is a classic offseason kind of anecdote um, where who knows if it's true. So a friend, this is going to be like triple hearsay. This is a friend of mine telling me, which he heard from someone who's been observing practice, is that you can see it in just the way Felipe has a command of the offensive calls. So last year, you know, they call in the play, whatever, jet right, Z, triple, whatever. And he, you can see him mentally trying to grind through what does that mean. Where is this person going? Uh, I don't know if I'm totally sure. I know where this one receiver is doing. I don't know if I know what everybody's doing. And this year he gets to play call and goes right to the huddle and or goes right to the line of scrimmage and executes it. Has much more of a command of not only – his job but what everybody else is doing and hopefully that's going to translate into him doing the stuff that you just commented on pre-snap read even having a good idea of what the play is trying to accomplish more so than just i need to get this ball and throw it here oh wait that guy fall down i had no idea what else to do after that so that's the kind of leap he needs to make and you know there is a narrative here you know he came in from high school incredibly raw and if he's gonna get to somewhere good this would be the route he would take really struggle that first year of playing make strides in his second year turns a corner in his third year so that narrative is on the table now he could flatline and just be like that you know he's never really gonna get there not everybody gets there but it's at least on the table and that's pretty exciting yeah very much so and i can't wait to make a couple of comments along what you just said but i'm going to save them for this piece Dan Mullen, improvements from last season to this season. You just mentioned a very obvious and important improvement you expect from your quarterback. You can now more efficiently get your team into the play call, and you yourself understand what each player has to do. Dan Mullen now has an entire team he spent two years with. What improvements do you expect Mullen to be emphasizing heading into this season? I think getting the most out of his personnel. I think a lot of guys were coming on towards the end of the year whether it's Grimes or Tony, do those guys get the ball in meaningful moments and in ways that they can maximize their potential? I felt like we were just scratching the surface of that last year. That's the most obvious one to me, and I have to go pretty far down a list to find anything else m- meaningful. I think as a coach, in terms of preparation and player development, it's hard to... You're picking nits with Mullen. Now, that even is like... You know, not a major concern, but something I expect him to improve in. His game day management, I have a lot of confidence in. This is not beating a dead horse here, but it's going to be the recruiting piece that's going to really move him forward. I have full confidence in him that week to week we're going to look good. We're going to do things that are make sense, that are going to be efficient. Like I said, his play calling is normally excellent, and 
is he's getting the most out of the wealth of talent at our skill positions. That's what I want to see from him this year. The singular thing I want to see, and if you're new to this podcast, I'll give you a little little background on it. When Mullen came in, we talked about Mullen's preferred offensive philosophy. And, and that really is to gain three to four yards per play. I mean, ideally, you want to gain like 3.7. is like the exact Urban Meyer number. If we gain 3.7 yards per play, then we're getting a first down every single time. Minimal risk, consistency, right? Uh, and Dan Mullen has stuck to that more than Urban has. We've talked about this before. Urban really moved to a more aggressive downfield passing offensive attack, whereas Mullen is still, from what we can observe, been much more oriented towards that, that four-yard number. I think in order for us to win a national title and to beat the elite teams, we have to have more of a vertical passing game. On top of that, we have the best vertical passing arm, arm strength-wise, in the country. We do not have the most accurate or Trevor Lawrence-oriented quarterback, but we have a guy who can sling it down there. We also have the best receiving core we've maybe ever had, but certainly rivals any of the best Florida's ever had. I need to see Dan Mullen make a commitment to actually completing more downfield passes this year when teams challenge us to do so. That's the key for me. If teams come in a a single high look and they play press man and we're not able to beat them down the field or we're not trying to beat them down the field, that's more important. If we try and we can't hit it, you can't blame the coach. But in the looks that demand we do it, we've typically shied away from them. I hope this year we take more shots down the field. I hope that we're more aggressive. I think that will help us tremendously. That is something that would prove to me that Dan Mullen is progressing in his system as opposed to staying rigid with his system. And I think all great coaches need to progress with what happens, whether it's Nick Saban or Bill Belichick or Dabo Sweeney. You have to alter some of your core beliefs in order to match what's going on around you. And I think with Dan Mullen, that's the key. And I want to give you one quick story, Alan. We didn't talk about this in the pod, but this past season, I got a chance to coach a professional flag football team. Michael Vick, Danny Warfel, Jason Avant. Uh, these are some guys that, that I got to, got to coach, got to work with. And, and I can tell you firsthand, we started with nationwide tryouts. We whittled down our roster from, you know, 100 down to 20, down to 15, right, to our game day roster. And then we put in the offense, put in the defense, got to game day, lost a double overtime thriller. Um, but what you learn from that, that process is, is it's so much effort, and so much time to get your players to understand why you're doing what you're doing. That by the time you get to game day, the result was fantastic by us. We did it very quickly. But if we go again this season, we're going to quantum leap that. Because now my players understand what we want to do and how we want to do it. I've identified the guys that are good that I can trust. I know which my weaknesses are and the new guys I need to replace. This is where Dan Mullen is right now in the Sato program. As a coach, he's got to be feeling very comfortable with where he is. He's got to have his leadership team on board. The players know what they're getting. He knows what he's getting. If Dan Mullen is the guy we think he is, this should be a coming out party for him against Miami because Manny Diaz is not in that same situation. He's having to start from the beginning, and that's not the same. He's spending a lot of time doing what I just told you I had to do to get the team up to speed. Dan is past all that now. He's past all that. He's getting to put the finer touches on. So this is a season of details. This is a season of the little things making the difference to see how good this team can become. And that's what I think to me is most exciting about a football being a football fan is these are the seasons where you really get to see how good your football coach is because the culture building and the recruiting at the beginning, that stuff is a skill set you can have, but the tinkering the master crafting of what to do and how to do it and to get your team from 10 wins to a championship, that's where the true skill comes in. 
I love it. And we have the personnel to do it. Guy with the big arm, Jefferson, Grimes, Cleveland. You have the receivers to stretch the field. We'll see if we have the O-line to do it. It's going to be a fascinating subject. Okay, James, let me just gauge your excitement level right now. Ask you to put it on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 is JT Raymond firing all cylinders. We just scored a touchdown. He is losing his mind. 1 is I don't even know if I'm going to watch any games. One is Wilger gets a positive test for a performance-enhancing yes. drug when you're six and zero. Um, I think I'm at I'm at like a an eight, and I'm probably at a ten. Technically, like fan-wise, beginning of the season, it's the Hurricanes. I grew up in Miami. I was a huge Hurricane fan. But if I'm looking truly at the season, it's an eight because there's a couple of question marks that that leave me concerned that we're not going to get me to a ten. So a ten would be I think there's a legit shot that we can play for an SEC title and not only play, but like actually compete and win one. I'm at a 10. I cannot wait to see if we can do it. 2008 kind of yeah. excitement. Yeah. Or, you know, or just, yeah. Or like close enough. I feel like we're just still a shade outside of that to where if we got there, I would still be like, I don't know. So for me, eight, eight's there. Like that could happen and that'd be great. And then I'd go to like a 15 because it'd be like the underdog story. But I think that's where I am. I'm excited. I can't wait to see it. I've got a little reservation that we're not quite ready for that yet. So I don't want to go off the rails, JT mode. Uh, I want to stay right where I am, but I'm certainly excited. Previous years, I've answered this as a five or a six, and so an eight is a step up. How about you? I'm saying right around there, eight, eight and a half. I'm I do like this kind of place that we're in as a program. It's you know it's fun being on the way back up if we truly are. You know, I don't know that Alabama would ever complain about where they're at, but they're just you know they only can go down, which is kind of a weird place to be as a fan feels like we got a lot of potential to go up, and that's fun. Uh, you're right. I don't think we're – I'm not expecting us to win the national championship, so there's probably a little bit of room there in the ceiling. But I, I'm very much looking forward to this season and see what happens. I mean, there is some places where bad stuff can happen. Anytime you introduce that uncertainty, there's a lot of feelings, both positive and negative, about it. Well, both of us at a high level of excitement and optimism. I know that you, the listeners are as well. I can tell from the messages we get and the conversations I have, I really have not found a single person who's like down on this. Season. That's right. And that is, again, we want to keep highlighting that because it's been a very long time. It's been a decade since truly we've entered a season, I think, with legit logical optimism. Not blind optimism, logical excitement for the program that we're about to have here and enjoy. And it's not perfect this year. We're not there yet. We have question marks. But... As you said, Alan, we have less question marks than the majority of teams, which is something different than in the past. Now, let's walk through each position. Now, our goal here is to give you who we think the starters are. Uh, The depth chart has a lot of ors on there, right? So there's a lot of, okay, here's this guy or this guy or this guy, which means that that that's good. A, that means there's a lot of close competition. They expect these guys to rotate. And B, it means we're not going to nail down exactly who's what or whatever. We're going to give you, here's the crop of guys we think are the starting level guys, and here's the guys behind them. And we'll spend more time, of course, talking about the starters and then highlighting some depth issues we think we have. So we'll kind of go through strength and weakness and and give you a nice idea of what the roster looks like. Let's start with the offense. And quarterbacks, Alan, I'm going to start with them because this is the first time in a long time that we truly have zero quarterback discussion that's even merited at this point in time, which is weird. Now, there could be one as the season goes on. But right now, give us the Allen Williams quarterback jet chart uh, for the 2019 season. 
Well, Felipe is obviously the guy. And you're right, it's been a while since we've had an unquestioned leader of that position. To me, the clear backup now is Emory Jones. He he would be the guy who would get the most run. Kyle Trask, I think, is a distant third. You know, maybe you see him in in a certain scenario, but it's hard for me to imagine what that would be. Emory Jones looks like he's going to be the guy for the future, unless someone comes in and supplants him. That he's taken some steps, and that's good. So decent quarterback room for the first time in a while. That you know, Kyle Trask is still forever the mystery man, but at least you could say there's three guys in the room who've been in the system, understand, aren't brand new. And that's that's good. Now, Felipe is out for extended period of time. I think everything about our expectations for the season go out the window. The backups are not at his level, at least at the moment. But if he had to miss a half or a game, we could hopefully survive. Interesting. Let me play a little devil's advocate on the quarterback side. Do uh, it. Felipe gets hurt in the first quarter of the Miami game. Yes. Emery comes in, does not get hurt, plays the whole season. How many wins do you think it costs us? I would level us down to like six or seven wins. Interesting. I might take I might take the higher end of that. You think seven or eight? Yeah, I think so. I like our schedule. I think we're better than most teams we play. I guess the question is this. What did Felipe do last year that Emery couldn't do this year? That's probably the real question. Highlight for me that difference. One, I do think a command of the offense and what we're trying to do. Emery's just a younger guy at this point, too. You know, he's got an interesting skill set, but I don't know if, honestly, I just don't know. So therefore I have to level down those expectations. I don't, if Felipe is at a certain level, I think Emory Jones, at least until he comes out and proves it, sits a few notches below in my mind in terms of his ability to execute our entire playbook. Yeah, I think what maybe I'm illustrating in my mind is, the quarterback room has a clear first guy, but the second guy, although slightly unknown, has spent a lot of time in the system and on paper should be competent. It should be, it would be exciting at least. Should be competent enough, especially to handle most of these teams on our schedule that we'd be favored to beat, which is interesting. I think it's, it's illustrating again, when you're building a good team, if you lose your quarterback, that should probably knock you out of winning a national title. But if you're hovering in this eight, nine, 10 win range, Oddly enough, unless your team is like a hero quarterback and a bad team, if you're Florida with your talent level, you want to get to the point to where your backup quarterback is not so far behind sure. that it's a three-win difference. And well, I think, I want to say, we're not at that place anymore. I think Franks gives you the upside where Franks is the stock that bottle rockets up. You can compete for an SEC title. You can play above your level. Uh, Emory Jones right now gives us no reason to think that's possible, although it could be. But I also think that Emory doesn't drop us down more than maybe a win and a half at most. Well, there's I think some maybe teams, some of those games get get tighter with him for sure. Well, there's some teams on our schedule that are a little iffy. Like we will be expected to win, but you know, Kentucky, South Carolina, Vanderbilt. I mean, there are some certain scenarios where those get dicey for us, you know, depending on how the momentum of the season breaks. So if you have a young quarterback on the road, who knows? Who knows is right. All right, quarterbacks, best quarterback room we've had, not necessarily talent-wise per se. We've had some interesting guys come in and out, but cohesiveness, structure, uh, veteran leadership to the guy behind him, to the guy behind him. It's a good situation in the quarterback room with regards to floor level. Ceiling level remains to be seen. We don't know how good any of these guys are, but we do have the floor level covered. All right, tight ends. This is maybe 
the most talented tight end group we've had, obviously since the days of Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, this is a really interesting group. Now, even who's starting is a little bit of a mystery. You've got Kyle Pitts, who you saw play a decent amount last year, and Lucas Kroll, who looks like Thor, uh, former college baseball player, late to college football. Both those guys are incredibly intriguing. You know, Pitts has been working with the wide receiver group. He's a really dynamic athlete at that size. If those guys take a step forward, we could really see things open up in this offense. Gamble is another guy I think is maybe the most complete guy in terms of blocking and receiving. He's going to see some time. There's some other guys, Zipper, Lang, who I think will see the field some, but uh, it's a pretty deep position and, and a varied position where those guys can accomplish different things. But I think, especially if Kroll can improve enough as a blocker, our ability to disguise what we're going to do personnel-wise goes up a much higher level. This is, this group has much more potential than last year's group. Like It's not even on the same chart. Now, they could be technically kind of worse. If they can't block well enough to be on the field, then they're kind of worthless. But I don't think that's going to happen. I'm expecting a lot out of this group. And maybe you don't even see it in production all the time, but what they open up in the playbook could be really excellent for our offense. Yeah, if you look at high leverage plays or situations in a Urban Meyer or Dan Mullen offense, the tight end is often the key to that play because of what you just said, your personnel grouping. If you're unfamiliar with the personnel grouping, uh, when your football team comes onto the field, there's going to be you know so many running backs or receivers or tight ends. The defense then gets a chance to sub and equal that. And so a lot of football, the opening chess move is, well, what kind of personnel grouping are they in? Do you have five wide receivers? we got to bring in a bunch of defensive backs. If you have no wide receivers? Let's bring in some more linebackers kind of a thing. Correct. And if you're able to stay with, let's say, two tight ends for five or six or seven plays in a row that can both block and pass, then you can put the defense at a disadvantage. It forces them to have a linebacker who can both stop the run and cover. And not every team has that. So it gives you a chance to find something you like and keep the defense on their toes. And that's something Mullen obviously believes in. That's why you see the tight end position kind of getting upgraded in this team. And this year is, I think, the first year where we have some true pass-catching talent with the appropriate size, that this could be something to watch as the season goes on. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room. This, to me, last year, Alan, was what we talked about, and we're going to talk about it again this year. This team's success will be largely dependent upon this personnel group in the offensive line. That's true of any football team, but especially true of the Gators these past several years. We just not have not quite gotten it going. I'll open the conversation with this. Maybe a little bit surprisingly, this is the most talented group of linemen we've had since 2012. In terms of their star rating coming out of high school? Correct. Which is an interesting note because yeah. there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interesting discussions. It doesn't mean they'll be good, but this is the most talented group recruiting-wise we've had. A lot of unproven players, a couple of proven players. What do you see out of this O-line? Give give us a rundown. We want to play eight. Do we even have eight? What's the depth look like? Where are we with this group? This will be, I think, the unit that determines our failure success this season. Now, what's funny is that we said this last year, and that group really never done all that much, and they turned into a pretty solid group by the end of the year. The problem is we're replacing almost all of them. There's going to be new names out there for you. But on the other side of that, most of the guys on this list have been in the program for a while. This is not just a group of freshmen and sophomores after you graduate seniors. So Stone Forsyth, the left tackle, 
Brett Heggie is a name you might recognize. We talked about him a lot. Didn't play last year because he's injured. Nick Buchanan, the only returning starter at center. Chris Bleck, Bleich, Bledge. We'll see. And Jean Delance. That's how I like to say his name. And there's probably three or four guys behind him, behind them. I think that the staff feels good about one of them. Unfortunately, is Noah Banks who had to medically retire last week. So this is a place where if we have more than one or two injuries, we could be really hurting. There's There are guys there, and there are some talented guys, but for the most part, they're young and inexperienced. Well, they're all, almost all of them are inexperienced. And so this was the question mark coming this season. You know what? As I've thought about it, it, it doesn't feel as dire to me as it did exiting the season. Those guys have been around. They've been under our offensive line coach, John Hevesy, now for a, over a year. He's at least has a reputation as a as a developer of talent and getting an offensive line to be a cohesive unit. You saw improvement in last year's offensive line. And none of those guys are, you know, other than Juwan Taylor, like world beaters, right? You know, even Martez Ivy didn't get drafted. So I, I'm expecting this unit right now to be solid. Now we thought that two years ago and they came out against Michigan and they got obliterated last year's unit. We were worried about, they did pretty well and they turned into a, you know, I don't think like an amazing group, but a solid one that lets you get to do what you needed to do. That's my hope. If this unit craters, I think you lose most of what you want to do on offense because it doesn't matter how many flashy wide receivers or great running backs. If you have no offensive line, you're not going to be able to accomplish much. I think our season rises and falls on this group. If you're going to ask me main strength, main concern, this is my main concern. Uh, it's an easy main concern, especially on offense, which is filled with a lot of strengths elsewhere. The, the two names we're probably both most comfortable with are Buchanan and Heggie. I think those two guys you feel good about. I think after that, you have you have question marks. You know, totally. Can, can Forsyth block premier defensive ends? We have no idea. Probably not, I think, is the answer. If he could, that'd be a big surprise. If he can't, you talk about a running back having to pass pro that side. When you've got a pass protect side and team knows it, they're able to create much better blitzing schemes against you. So it, football's a great sport because of that, right? You could have 10 amazing guys in one weak spot, and especially if they're on the O-line, it changes everything you do. And that's why the O-line is so important. If you're kind of down one receiver, they still have to cover that receiver. But if you're down one O-lineman that really can't block the guy in front of him, you are like all hands on deck to stop that from being the case. And Miami's front seven is what they are best at. So we're going to answer some questions right out of the gate with how good this Certainly. offensive line can be. Uh, they're going to need to at least, I think, Alan, do one thing well. Last year's team figured out how to run block. That was the key. This year's team's got to do something well. they got to be able to pass block a little bit or run block a little bit. I don't think we expect them to be, excel at both. But they've got to have something they can do, like you mentioned, to be predictably consistent. Uh, if not, you turn into the McElwain era of just of total inconsistent offensive line play. I don't think we have a fear of that. I think Hevesy's got a track record that he gets the most out of these guys. We just don't really know what's going on. But we do know that these guys have a lot of actual practice experience, which is something you can't sleep on. That is so important. Strength and development mainly training. juniors and seniors. They are the right size. They've been around college football a long time. If you're starting freshman on the offensive line, you're almost exclusively dead. And so thankfully, we're not in that situation, uh, but it is the biggest question mark. I think, like you said, Alan, it's totally true. The success of the entire team 
will almost ride with the offensive line. Pay attention in that first game. If you see Miami defenders shooting through the gaps or we're getting confused on basic blitzes, we're in trouble. Now, they could improve. Hopefully, they will improve throughout the year. But if they're, if where their starting point is is bad, that throws the whole season into question. Indeed, it does. All right, let's look at the running backs. Starting running back, Michael P. Ryan. Yeah. Surprise. A guy who's... Not surprised? You no, know, I mean, that's great. I love that we have a guy coming back that we can depend on in, I think, three phases in the game, both rushing the ball, obviously, receiving out of the backfield, and blocking. A, a clear leader in this group. And there's talent behind him. Malik Davis returns. Uh, Damian Pierce is there. A couple more guys, fre- you know, freshman, retro freshman. But those are three guys you're going to see mostly. And I think you'll see Piran get a larger share of the carries than anyone did last year. Like it was pretty much an even split between Piran and Scarlett. They might have even had the exact same number of carries and very close to the same number of yards. But I think Piran is the clear leader for this group. But Mullen doesn't. You know, he's not Gus Malzahn. He doesn't run one guy into the ground. You're going to see, hopefully see all three of these guys to keep them fresh for an entire year, and that would be good news. It's a very strong group. If any one of those guys do go down, I feel fine about where we're at. Um, yeah, so no worries there. I don't know that it's an elite, elite group in terms of like a Georgia. That's the strength of your team, and those all those guys are going to be first-round picks, but very solid group. Yeah, very solid. And I think for the first time in this podcast history, we're going to have consistent and dependable pass blocking from the running backs. And that was a plague every year. You couldn't put the second guy in because the second guy couldn't pass block. Well, I think now you've got all these guys that can pass block. Um, And if they can't, they're not going to play because there's enough depth. There's enough depth. And so finally, you've reached what you would consider to be a, a top 15 programs running back stable. Maybe not the elite guy, like you mentioned. But honestly, that doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't matter that much. I think in college football... You want consistency, dependability, and you want pass protection. That is so important. It's hard to see when you're watching the game normally because everyone recognizes the great run. But if you can consistently pass protect as a running back in college, you will set yourself apart. And I think we can we can be confident that will happen with this group. And that's gonna that's gonna be big, 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 big in how we help out our offensive line. So, and P. Ryan, I think the coaches figured out that he could catch the ball pretty well coming out of the backfield. He made some nice plays. Toward the year, and especially against Michigan, they really used him effectively. And that could be huge for offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stretching the field and having a check down like that will, will absolutely help, especially if we're looking to, like we mentioned, send our receivers on vertical routes. You need to be able to have a, a low check down. I think without a doubt, Alan, the wide receivers are the best and most talented position group. In fact, they're so highly ranked that the NFL scouts that rank college football position groups have them second only behind Alabama. Let that sink in. Second only behind Alabama at the wide receiver group. An incredible job by Mullen and the staff uh, to get this done. And a small hat off to McElwain here for bringing in one or two of these guys. But predominantly, the staff, uh, the wide receiver staff and Mullen have, have done a phenomenal job. It's been a long time since we have so much talent. It's almost ridiculous. You kind of wish you could spread this around a little right, bit. Right, they're all pretty old. That's how talented we have. But uh, tell us about the wide receivers. So names, you'll recognize these names. Van Jefferson, our leading receiver. Trevon Grimes, transfer from Ohio State, who was immediately eligible and played really well. Uh, Kadarius Tony, he's the guy. You get him the ball, he's going to make something happen. Tyree Cleveland, kind of forgotten guy in this group. But when we signed him, he was maybe the most talented guy on our entire roster. And then Swain and Hammond, guys who've been here a long time. Neither of them dropped the ball last year. All of those guys are 
seniors or juniors. Uh, and so really top heavy. And you've got the guy to watch, the young guy to watch is Jacob Copeland. We've talked about him. He's barely played. He's the guy everyone talks about in practice. So we don't need him to be successful, but we're going to need him definitely next year because we're going to lose at least four of those guys from the top end of our group. And there's some other guys on the roster, but they're not going to play because we're so top heavy in this group. But really diverse skill sets, a lot of talent, a lot of speed, um, some good route running. So you've got some beast athletic guys and you've got some technicians. So I, you can do anything you want with this group. And they all cross train and they can play multiple positions. This should be the strength of the team. Um, but again, if your quarterback play and your offensive line play is bad, they're just out there running routes. But we should see these guys win their matchups and we should see them make plays in space. Yeah, this is a unit where if you had a top 10 offensive line, this Florida team would be a, a top three team in the country because you could put four and five of these guys out there and, and teams would have an unbelievably difficult time guarding. Yeah, your fifth corner is going to guard one of these guys? No way. No way. And so unfortunately, we I don't think we're really ever going to have that luxury this season against an elite team. It just won't be possible. But you can imagine scenarios where if it was, it would be truly remarkable. On offense, Allen, our starters, if you had to grade them nationally, safe to say I think that they are competitive with just about any group out there minus the tier one teams. If you're talking about these guys could compete for a starting job, the receivers, any team that could compete for it, right? The running backs, mostly competitive. Uh, I think you look at the tight ends, I think there's upside guys, especially in college football, which has a, a dearth of tight ends. And the O-line, I think, is where you look at it and say, you know, most of those guys are not going to be starting on from what we know, at least right now. Yeah. Yeah. A tier it's even a tier three team. And that's how you kind of identify where that situation looks. But without a doubt, the starters are there. Let's talk just for a second, overall total offense. How do you feel about the guys where if you take a couple of injuries behind them? So we've highlighted kind of the starters and the immediate guys. If you get a couple of guys down, do you feel like we're where we need to be as an offense with regards to depth? We can handle the attrition or are there some holes? Certainly. Uh, what wide receiver, tight end, running back. I mean, we talked about quarterback at length, but those three spots, you could withstand a pretty heavy dose of injuries. And I think you could still make things happen. Again, it's offensive line. Well, the starters are certainly improving. The backups, you know, obviously are a step behind them and are way more improving. Now, there are some guys who are talented. There's guys who are the coaches seem to like but who knows they've never seen the field never have zero snaps between the group of them so we'll see uh hopefully it doesn't come to that uh if you want to pray for health on our team pray for the offensive line on offense certainly and that's your key your key weakness and again why we highlighted you know sort of where we are uh strength weakness and what's most important and, and you can make an argument this year the o-line is almost more important than quarterback almost more important let's flip sides to the defense a unit that's obviously been fantastic under grantham uh, he's here again which is fantastic for us we've chronicled that already let's start with the defensive line some new faces this year on the line uh, we've talked a lot about defensive tackle and some issues we have with that how do you feel about this starting d line pretty good i mean they're solid i mean campbell and Schuler came on last year and provided some stability at that spot defensive tackle both the three technique and the nose tackle and you've got jabari zuniga coming back um, who had a really solid last year. I think he had even better this year. The big guy that the big name we're replacing along the defensive line here is um, Polite, off to the NFL. 
had a big breakout year last year. And there's some talent to replace him, but the thing that the staff did that provides a lot of stability is they brought in John Greenard, who's a um, transfer from Louisville, played under Grantham there. And I think he's just plugged in right away, fit right in, kind of a plug-and-play type guy. So behind them, I think there's some interesting guys. I think you'll see Zachary Carter play a lot, giant guy um, who played behind Zuniga. Um you know, Slayton and Conliffe are still guys on the roster. They're still waiting for them to come on and do something. Very highly rated guys. And then the buck position, that's what Greener plays. You know, technically outside linebacker, but really pass rusher. Interesting guys behind there. Jeremiah Moon is a guy they're expecting some stuff out of. And then you have some interesting freshmen. Bogle is going to play. Um, I think you'll see Diabate play. A lot of things they can do at that spot. So, Decent depth. I, there's guys who are going to play I haven't even talked about yet. Um, so it feels good. It feels good to be confident in that position. I think there's some high-end ceiling there and a lot of stability, a lot of guys who have played a lot of snaps who are you know, SEC caliber players. You don't have a huge drop-off in any one spot. Yeah, I think the question mark for me with this unit is obviously can you replace Polite. But I think more importantly than that, in a 3-4, you have got to get upfield pressure Certainly. from your D-tackle. You have to get it. We've really been unable to get it. We talked about it when we when we first chronicled running a 3-4 and what that means. You've got to get it. And there's still big question marks for me as to whether or not we can actually do that. And we've survived that. We've been able to manage that largely because of the pass rushing uh, that we've been able to generate. But at some point in time, again, against the elite teams, that gets you. You need to be able to have your D-tackle hold a zone and also be able to actually provide an upfield rush, especially on passing downs, if you're going to really play a true 3-4. Uh, Grantham helps alleviate this by his creative blitzing. That's that's a big, big help. But expect, at least me, to be looking a lot this game against Miami, which has a very weak offensive line, at how well we handle that. Right. And I think you can am- ameliorate that some by having either Zuniga or Carter kick inside and basically put two bucks on the field and you could get a lot of pass rush that way. Now you could get burned doing that obviously by teams running out there. I think the interesting thing about greener is that he'll, I think it'll be much more of a help against the run than polite was. So he's not as dynamic a player, but bring some strengths in other areas. I I'm feel very comfortable with this group that maybe they're not going to be as lights out, as it could be, although Zuniga has some room to improve still. So there's still a little bit of growth potential there. Um, but I expect good, solid performance out of this unit, and there's a chance that they could turn into a unit that's dominating. We'll see. I love that. Let's talk about the linebackers. So you mentioned some there. When you run the 3-4, of course, you're going to get a mixed match of what's going on. But the three starting linebackers, one that you've talked about, the Louisville transfer, of course, David Reese, senior David Reese, and then Amari Bernie. Tell me about this unit. I think there's a lot of excitement for this unit. We've sort of been plug and playing various linebackers. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. We've really only had two in the past five or six years you could really count on. It seems like the coaching staff really thinks we have three, uh, if not a couple others in Moon especially, who could <clears throat> potentially rise up and become consistent every down linebackers. This group has improved a lot. I mean, I think it was two years ago. We're like, if we have even an injury at linebacker, we are so screwed. I feel like there's less of a chance now. David Reese is still a guy. If we lose him, it's going to hurt us. You saw that in the Kentucky game. 
it's really interesting at the other linebacker spot, which I think our team referred to as the money linebacker. So we basically play two linebackers plus a we're in like constant nickel. And that's Amari Bernie. So he played there at, towards the end of last year. Is he a defensive back? Is he a linebacker? I guess the answer is yes. So he provides some really intriguing stuff at this position where he should be able to cover opposing tight ends or even running backs, wide receivers, whatever, at a much higher level. We shouldn't see the same pass defense breakdowns that we saw last year with our boy, Voshan Joseph, who we loved and hated. And the guys behind there, Miller and Houston, I think are capable of playing that spot and potentially David Reese's spot much better than anybody we had on the team last year. No more Rayshad Jacksons, uh, no more walk-ons. There's enough guys here that we should be able to fill those two spots. Now, if we have to, if we had injuries and then we had to go heavy at linebacker, that would be a problem. But in our base defense, feels like we're pretty well set. Now, again, there's we couldn't survive a rash of injuries, but that's I think that's true for most teams. Uh, feels good in this spot and with a little bit of upside too with Bernie that he could be a potential breakout player for us. Yeah, certainly not elite level in the linebacking core, but relative, right, better by comparison, if you will, relative to what we've had, this is a strong step up. And that's most evident by the fact that a guy who's been in the program for a long time, Rashad Jackson, chose to move on. Uh, And that's a good thing for Florida. You need those things to happen. Uh, And so I think you're not going to have a guy who's glaringly out of position. And you're probably also not going to have, you know, a first or second round draft pick in this unit either. But you do have consistency and you have multiple guys now which I think is great. That that does give us some room for error. Let's talk about our DBs. Uh, you've got, obviously, C.J. Henderson, who's who's ranked as the number one DB in all of college football. And then Marco Wilson, who I think is probably quietly stewing about this. Uh, in my opinion, Marco Wilson was the better corner, for sure, his first year there. I think he's kind of been a little forgotten about, maybe. If he's the same guy coming off of his ACL, I think we could expect him to to show us who truly is the best corner. But obviously, Florida, yet again, in a phenomenal cover corner situation. It seems like we had a lot of years of this. I don't want to say we wasted it, but a lot of years of exceptional cover corner talent. No different this year. Question, of course, Alan, the depth behind them. Right. That's the other place on this team if you want to pray for health. So had some guys either transfer out, you know, whether that's a positive or negative, Edwards, McWilliams, Edwards um, uh, transferred out, McWilliams hurt. Famously, Chris Steele was here for a hot minute in the spring. He left our highest rated guy in the class. Now you have three freshmen basically behind these guys. Uh, and I think they're all going to play. Uh, Kimbrough, Jaden Hill, and of course, Kair, Kair Elam, you know, famously related to Matt Elam, if you remember that name. So those guys, I think, have talent, but they're freshmen. Now, if something happens, I, I think the other name we need to put in here is Trey Dean who played last year as a true freshman. They moved him to the star position, which Chauncey Gardner Johnson played last year, which is super important to the team. They call it the star position. I should let you know what they think about it. And, you know, interestingly, Amari Bernie listed as the backup at the star position shows his versatility that he's basically playing nickel corner and outside linebacker. Amazing to have that kind of talent and versatility on your team. That really lets you disguise what you're doing. If something happened to Wilson and Henderson, I bet you would see Trey Dean move back over unless the freshmen just come on and are amazing. 
And I, I think those guys are high in talents and they have a chance to be really good. You do not want to get yourself in a position where you're going to have to rely on them. So that, those top three of, you know, we're expecting things out of trading yet. We haven't seen him play the, the star position, but Dean Henderson and Wilson is a fantastic trio of corners slash, you know, defensive backs. Yeah, our starting talent is is maybe the best in the country if Marco Wilson is who he was. Right, that's a big if. But we're, I mean, no one has said anything contrary to that. And the only reason we're not, if you look at the professional rankings, like scouting rankings, is because people don't want to put a, a, a opinion on Marco Wilson. If he was the same, I think it's safe to say that we're definitely top three. But I think, in my opinion, probably number one, I think Trey Dean has a chance to be one of the best nickel cover corners in the country. That's an incredible luxury. But as you mentioned, one injury we can probably handle, two injuries, stuff gets really, really dicey. And typically in the cornerback group, you do have guys go down, at least for a game or two um, during the season. That's pretty typical. Last but not least, last year we talked about this unit. We said they were a big question mark on defense. This year we'll talk about this unit. And I will say, yet again, they are a big question mark on defense. We've got the safeties. We should feel a little better this year, Alan? I think so. Now, this is a place where these guys are all different, but they're all going to play. So you've got Jaywan Taylor, Steiner, um, who am I leaving out? Sean Davis. Who's the fourth guy? Brad Stewart, of course. All these guys played last year. They're all going to play again. They're all a little bit different. It'd be interesting to see how the staff utilizes them and which pairings they put them in and what situations they put them in. Are they just going to rotate them? Do they have specialized roles? Uh, we'll see. So this is an experienced group. They're all juniors and seniors. There's almost no one behind them. So if the catastrophic thing happened, they all four got hurt, it would be like, okay, I guess we're going to move Dean to safety or something. Who can say? Uh, but this group feels like they should be solid. They've been around long enough. They're talented enough. I don't know if you're going to get elite safety play, although a couple of them, I guess, theoretically, but, you know, Brad Stewart might have that in them. He's probably the most talented guy. But if they can avoid the mistakes of getting beat over the top, misreading what the offensive is doing, blowing assignments, I think that's what we'd hope from this group, not the ball-hawking Reggie Nelson, all-American type play. But if you get solid play from your safety in this defense, I think that'll help. Uh, that'll be enough. Yeah, safeties are often the key, as we mentioned, to, to good football, especially when you look at the modern spread offense. If I had a, a board, I could I could illustrate this for you. But imagine in your mind that you have the defense on the field and you have your two safeties, so you're starting in a cover two high on the screen. A really good team is able to to move one of the safeties, the free safety, down in the box to either cover someone or stop the run. They can do that post-snap or pre-snap. They can do a lot to mess with somebody. If you get the situation we kind of have where one guy's better covering than the other guy or, or you know one guy's a better run stopper than the other guy, you never really have that same flexibility when you're talking about pre- and post-snap disguise. And then most importantly, once or twice or three times a game, your safety is called a safety for a reason. Somebody gets beat, they run a good play, and your safety is supposed to recognize this. This, Allen, is where I hope, after all this coaching these guys have had, we can clean some of that stuff up. We saw evidence of that towards the end of the year, but we also saw teams that were absolutely terrible on offense. So not necessarily something great. Good news this week, Miami also should be relatively horrifically bad 
passing on offense. So in the past, when I've said in this podcast, I'm worried about the safeties. This week, I think with this group, what you just said is strong for me. They're veteran. They're smart. They've been there. There's nothing Miami should do to them that should put them way out of position. They're old enough not to get beat by that stuff. When two years ago, they were getting beat by that stuff. And that's going to be very important for how Miami plays, how we expect them to play with their offensive coordinator. But on defense, I think it's safe to say if you had concerns, one is cornerback depth and two is still safety play. If you're really looking at it as a top-tier team, those two things stick out as not quite there, not quite where we need to be. If you were going to pick on like a weakness of our team, you would say, okay, the safeties aren't the same level. You're right. Um, And, you know, the safeties probably get too much credit, too much blame. One of those positions, you know, maybe in a certain defense, the corner is supposed to stay with the guy and he drops him off. All of a sudden, the safety's sprinting across the field. Looks like he's late, but he wasn't supposed to even be there. But he's running there because no one else is going to. So we're hard on those guys often because you see the end result of the play and it's their fault. And sometimes you see it on film. It's like, yeah, they blew it. And their mistakes are big. And they can be incredibly costly. If we can avoid that, you know, I think we'll end up grading this group out as a success, no matter their like high end potential. Yeah, I think the defense is safe to say that there are with Grantham's ability with what he's done, he has enough pieces that you'd expect them to be a top twenty five unit again. Not an elite unit, not that kind of unit because of maybe a few missing pieces here in the front seven and and a true safety in the back end. But but certainly Chances to play like an elite unit at times during the season, which is which is I think I think good. Last but not least, special teams. Special teams for yeah. this team should be excellent this season. It's continuity no there. Expect otherwise. Tommy Townsend back at punter. Evan McPherson, who had a sensational freshman year as a kicker, is back. Um, enough talent at these skill positions where we should see some competition at punt returner and kick returner. I still want to see Kadarius Tony return punts. He's not. He's listed as second right now. If he's reliable enough to catch a punt, he should be doing it. I think he's wasted on kick returns. Now, maybe he's going to prove me wrong with that or kickoff return. Um, see Freddie Swain listed to that. You know, his averages are decent, but Denver feels like he's going to break it wide open. Um, I would love to see the staff be aggressive with this. Put the best guy out there. If he gets hurt, doesn't matter. we got enough depth. You know, whether that's maybe Jacob Copeland returning kickoffs whoever it is whoever's going to give you the biggest game breaker and not kill you with like a fumble or something like that be aggressive in this area because we have the talent we have the surplus to be aggressive well this could be a huge advantage for us we'll see how this shakes out i i don't know um if we're going to get a plus 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 level and kick and punt return but we could i'd love to see that because that could be a place where that puts us over the top, where we start to compete with some of these teams that maybe talent throughout the depth chart isn't matching up. But if we take advantage of those areas um, and our depth in certain positions could be, you know, a catalyst for some big wins. Yeah. Kickoff return and punt return, I think is maybe where you see the biggest derivation between Urban Meyer and, and Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen, much more conservative with how he handles that. Urban Meyer, much more aggressive when it comes to trying to score big or do big things. And I think that's illustrated by what you're saying. Why is Freddie Swain the guy? Because Freddie Swain never drops or fumbles the ball. That's why he's the guy. And I think it illustrates the importance Dan Mullen places on that. I'm with you, though. I think I'll take a guy fumbling maybe once or twice a season if he's going to wind up getting 15 to 20 more yards in starting field position. The math works out on that. 
but I think Dan consistently says, you know, we're not in practice, but certainly that he, he'd rather. And you could have. always put Swain back there. If it's a, it would be catastrophic for someone to fumble it, put him back there, you know, but more. And we saw Tony muff a punt and we're like, well, maybe that's why he's not back there. He did field one in the spring game. That was just a moment, but maybe who knows if they even knew he was out there or whatever. Um, that's the guy I want to see. That's the, I mean, he's almost the perfect punt returner if he can field the ball. Yeah, we'll if Tony see. was smart, he would have spent a lot of time doing it. And again, with my with my football camp, the hard knocks of, uh, of the Florida Fury, we did a drill where we had some balls going way high in the air. And we had most of these guys played in the NFL or at least Division One college football. And it was rather comical of how many of them, truly, they were uncomfortable reading it. And a lot of them would catch it. But as a coach, all, all it took was one uncomfortable catch, and that guy was done with being the kick returner. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and that's true. And so with Tony, for all we know, he could be really shaky on a lot of those in practice, and that's why he doesn't get and it. And that's we, okay. If that's we, not his that, spot. If that's the case, yeah. then you're right. And it does seem hard to believe that 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 Swain is our best option there. And that's no offense to Swain. But, right, but he's solid. Like we have right. we have more explosive receivers, more upside. But either way, special teams should be a tremendous strength of this team. Another reason why I think if you look at our starters, there's no doubt we're a top 10 team this season. This is not a, a, a mythical ranking. All right, let's change gears, Alan. Let's walk through some predictions. Every year we do this. That's we, fun. we talk about you know whether it's going to be over-under totals or individual player totals or breakout player totals. It's a good time. We've, we've slimmed them down a little bit this year. I think we found the ones that are the most interesting. And let's, uh, let's get to these. All right, James. Who is going to be your breakout player? On offense, are you still eligible to pick Dre Massey? I want to. In my head, I'm thinking it's got to be Dre Massey. He's <laughs> he's ready. He's gonna come back. I'm gonna pick my guy. I've got my guy on offense, Damian Pierce. That's my guy. Okay. That guy on special teams is an absolute bullet and battering ram at the same time. He's got a lot of talent. I love the way he runs the football. You mentioned yourself that this 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 running back is a running back by committee. Although P. Ryan will get more carries. I think a breakout player is a guy that's got to be like Pierce. You're kind of there. You're ready. You're a sophomore now. You have that high-level talent. You've flashed some interesting ability. This would be the season where when you get your carries and you know the playbook, you get to do more. All last year we heard that Pierce just didn't know enough of the playbook, wasn't trusted enough in pass pro yet to really get enough. So on offense, he's going to be my guy. I think he's in the best situation to become a breakout player just depending on how things go. I think it's tough to pick a receiver. It's almost impossible to pick a receiver in this. Right. Because there's there's They're too many receivers. It. But I'm going to go with Pierce. Who do you have? Uh, I want to say Lucas Kroll. So he's a guy who made some plays last year. And apparently in practice, I mean, he's a big guy who can run. You know, anybody who's probably, you know, been a high-level athlete like he is, you know, can run, he can catch, decent route runner. But could he block well enough? that he's a credible guy on the field. And I, man, I'm really excited about what he could do in this offense. Again, I don't think he's going to have like 50 catches or something like that, but I think he could be there for some big plays. I don't know if it's fair to say Kadarius Tony, because I think we'll probably get to every game and be like, I wish he would have touched the ball more, but there's just so many guys to get the ball to. And he's already, I think, quote unquote, broken out, but I'm, I am expecting him to have a big year as well. I like Kroll. Kroll is a giant. I mean, I imagine David versus Goliath. Kroll looks something like Goliath. I mean, that guy is just huge compared to other huge guys out there. Big dude, good skill set, can also throw the football. So I like I like your pick there. All right, how about on defense? 
I'm gonna. This is this is cheating. I think I'll give you two. I'm gonna I'm gonna take one. I'm gonna take Marco Wilson because I do feel like he's sort of a, a slept on guy. If you're not a Gator fan, even if you are a Gator fan, Marco Wilson to you may be a guy that you kind of remember being really good, but you've kind of forgotten about because so much has happened from Marco Wilson starting to tearing his ACL to now being where he is that maybe the emergence of him becoming the superstar on defense is a breakout. Uh, I think he already broke out by the technical definition. So I, I think I think from there, if you're going to the next level, uh, I'm going to go with Trey Dean at nickel. And he already played great at corner, but I think Trey Dean could be the best nickel in, in, in college football. I think this year he could be that. Uh, I think he's really, really good. I watched him progress tremendously as the year went on. If he was able to guard ones and twos last year when he's guarding a team's three or four, I think he could be absolute just shut down. And and that that's very important when you're running a three, four nickel defense. You've got to win that matchup. That's right. often the most important matchup to win. So I'm gonna go Trey Dean, even though he's kind of known. I think that he could he could like become an entity on his own alongside those corners. I think he's you know, theoretically built for this. We'll see if he can actually pull it off. Cause you know, he's recruited is he like, is he gonna be a safety? Is he gonna be a corner? And they're like, We need him at corner. But this kind of, you know, hybrid spot feels like it fits his skill set, kind of like Chauncey is Chauncey a uh, safety is he a is he a corner? Well, he's this. Hopefully, we'll see. Can he, you know, can trading do all the stuff that you're asking that star position to do? Because you kind of have to play a little linebacker. Is he gonna be physical enough for that? We'll see. Uh, so Bernie Amari Bernie is is my guy. Um, I think he gave a lot of people problems at the outside linebacker when we played him there last year because he just shuts down. I mean, kills those tight ends, kills those running backs in coverage. And I think he's physical and fast enough. He's one of the fastest guys in the field on the entire team, I think. So that's a huge bonus to have at an outside linebacker spot. Again, can he be physical enough? Is he going to get run over? Um, those are his question marks. And then Zach Carter, he, I mean, you notice when he's out there in the field, he is huge as well. I think he's going to play a lot of snaps. Um, you know, that kind of big in spot. We'll see. I mean, I don't know if he's gonna have a ton of sacks, but I think he's going to be really disruptive and you're going to start to see his name called a lot, whether that's, you know, stuffing a run play tackle for a loss on in a significant down. So I'm cheating a little bit, but I'll give you two. All right, James, anybody on this roster that could be an all American. I think there's a couple. Well, there's already one that is an all American on the preseason list. So let's start there with CJ Henderson, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think Marco Wilson could be an all American. I think that Zuniga, could be an All-American, will not be. I don't think he'll get the sacks for a lot of reasons, but he could be. I think uh, if Felipe Franks could be an All-American, will not be. Wow. Way okay. too much competition. But again, we did this last year. It's like, whose ceiling could get them there, right? Okay. Franks has the tools amongst other college football quarterbacks to to become whatever he wanted to become. Does he have between the years? I don't know. But as far as arm strength, size goes, athleticism, sure, of course he does. Uh, he won't. I don't think he will, again, but he could be. And then I think a receiver, any one of those guys, whether it's Grimes or Van Jefferson uh, or um, Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland is, is I think, kind of was like the Valley guy, right? He went way down in the doghouse, and now right. he's come way back up out of the doghouse. And he's probably our, our most explosive downfield pass and route runner. Uh, again, I don't think any of our receivers will get this because they won't a, have the we, numbers. we don't have the O-line to do it, and B, you have to be like a volume pass catcher to get that. But I'm running through the guys that I think have the talent to get there. Uh, and I think I think those are the guys, to me, I look at and say, there's talent there that could get it. Realistically, it'd be one of our corners. If anyone's going to get it, it's going to be either C.J. Henderson or Marco Wilson. Agreed. I, I do like the cause for Zuniga 
and Jefferson. I mean, Grimes. I mean, any of those guys, if they just happen to get enough explosive plays and our offense is really good, you could see them get some consideration. Again, I think the ball is going to get spread around a ton so that their numbers aren't going to be comparable with the guys who are just crushing it. But I think they – what we're saying here is, you know, you put them in a little bit of a different offense with not as much talent there – we're spreading it out as much, and those guys are capable of producing that much. Um, so I, I don't know. You know, I don't know that we're gonna have a, a ton of all Americans. I don't know if we have the kind of respect for that, but our corners that shows you the strength of the team and also the scary part if those guys get injured. Okay, our offense last year, roughly about 30 points a game, 37th you know, overall kind of, if you're looking at some composites, so that's points per game. Let me say this. I'm gonna give you the over under of 36 points per game. Are you taking the over or the under? Well, I just actually flew back in my chair and had a, <laughs> a super shocked look on my face. Uh, I was ready to say over which the last time I said over was several years ago, and we got half, I think, over the total was. Yes. But at 36 points a game, I'm, I'm comfortably going under. Okay. Um, that's a good number, by the way. I don't think that's stratospheric. I just think, I don't know. I, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, had you said like 33 or 33 and a half, I think I go over. So I'm, I'm right around 34. But 36 was too much for me to bite off. I'm going to go under. What do you got? I picked this because it was what I wanted to say. So maybe it would split you as well. So if I'm going to be a little optimistic, I'll say over, but not like a slide over, not like we're going to blow past this. If you were saying, th- if you gave me 33, I'd take a hard over. So I guess that shows you how I feel about it. Um, let's talk a little bit about Felipe. We've asked a question. Will someone throw for 3,000 yards? So last year, Felipe threw for you know roughly 2,500. Could he surpass 3,000 yards? 3,000 yards is... Such a low metric. We haven't had a quarterback <laughs> do it in eight seasons. It's disgusting. This this is the season. I mean, if he threw for 24-57 last year, where the majority of the podcast, we talked about his stat lines, 120 yards passing, 140 yards passing, eight passes thrown. Then this season, you got to think, you got to think he can get 500 more, right? 500 more? I, I would think so. You got to think so. So I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that we, we he throws, he becomes the first Gator quarterback in eight or nine seasons to throw for more than 3,000. Agreed. Agreed. Um, if I was going to put a number on, let me try to pin you on this a little bit. 3,700? Too much. Too I think. Much. I think for me, the way Dan Mullen, again, I'm, this is Dan Mullen's tendencies. Okay. Right? Dan Mullen wants to run the ball more than he passes the ball. I think in Damon's perfect football season, he runs the ball for 3,500 to 4,000 yards, and he passes it for 3,000 to 3,500 yards. So if you tell me 33, 3,400, I think that's the right number. I think Mullen himself doesn't even want to be above that. He wouldn't even take the risk to be above that unless he totally changes my mind with his schematic. Unless so, we're just hitting a ton of big plays. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go outside and say I just don't think Dan Mullen wants it that way, uh, but therefore I think 3,000 is definitely where he wants okay. to get. All right, so he threw 24 TDs last year and rushed for another seven. So that's 31 total. Do you think he eclipses 40 touchdowns total? You're picking good numbers. 40 is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I don't know that he's really – he had a lot of like 
little absurd touchdowns last year from the two and three yard line, both yeah, rushing but was, and passing. But I mean, is that? And you would expect something uh, yeah. similar. I agree. But still, it's yeah, that, that's tricky. Seven rushing touchdowns is a lot of rushing touchdowns. Forty is a lot for someone someone to get a combined touchdown total. He could do it. It's not that big of a jump. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the under. I think maybe he's right there. I'm take the under too. Thirty nine. But there's a lot that has to go right to have a 40 touchdown season as a quarterback. That's just a lot of stuff's got to go right. I, I think he'll continue to get those short yardage carries, but I don't know. The things have to break right. It's it's kind of a situational type of stat. All right, this is maybe the more important stat because I don't really care if we you know if P Ryan runs it in like 15 times, whatever. It's a touchdown, right, from the one yard line. So he threw six interceptions, which is actually a really nice number for where he was in this offense. I'm gonna put the number at. Four and a half. Are you going over or under? I'm going to go over, and I'm going over because I hope it's over. And why do I hope it's over? Because I hope we take more chances. Okay. Six to me, seven or eight at the most, is a good number for quarterbacks to have interceptions. I think there's an old saying amongst quarterbacks that if you don't throw any interceptions, you did not do your job as a quarterback. Right? You actually have to take some risk. You need a couple of your passes to get picked off. That's part of good quarterbacking. Uh, take those 50-50 shots down the field, right? Four and a half is absurdly low, although it can be done, uh, and I think we want to keep it safe. I- I'd rather see him throw eight picks, but have a significant bump up in completion percentage and downfield completion percentage. Both of those two things I think would be like great for me. I'd trade picks for that. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go over on four and a half. Okay, I'm gonna go over too. I think he'll probably end up with about five or six again. Um, I, I don't. Uh, you're right about this, and not all interceptions are created equal. Like you totally misread the defense. And you throw a pick to a linebacker standing there, bad. There's going to be balls tipped. There's going to be like maybe you threw, took a chance going down the field. The safety came over the top, made a big play, something like that. I'm okay with those. Those are going to happen. But it's, you know, in like the Georgia game where, you know, he misreads the high-low flooding the zone. You know, if he waits, the guy's running wide up underneath. He tries to throw the deep one because he thought the guy was going to cover the underneath guy. And he went to the back guy. What is he looking at? bunny interception the guy just standing there i don't want to see any of those the other ones i'm okay with and again when does it come in the game is it a back-breaking moment i think what he started to understand is that he didn't have to make a big play every time i think that's healthy for him because he's still not you know i don't want him to be a gunslinger necessarily at this point in our offensive development, especially with that offensive line. I don't want to see him getting hit, throwing a ball up for grabs. So that number's about right for me. Okay, James, do we have a 1,000-yard rusher this year? P. Ryan had 826 last year. I know if Tyler were here right now, he would do what he always does. And say, of, of course we're going to have a 1,000-yard rusher. Sure. It's not even that difficult. Look how close we were. And just like we said last year, yeah, Scarlett had about the same number, and we didn't get there again. Yeah. It's a running back by committee. We just don't have it. I think the answer to this question is no again, even though UCP Ryan is tempting to say yes again. I don't know that we have the O-line to do that yet. Uh, I think it's going to be close, very close. But again, if Pierce or Malik are as good as we think they could be behind him, I just don't see the carries. He's going to have to have like a a 7 or 7.2 yards per carry average, getting 15 or so carries a game, uh, which doesn't happen. I mean, most of these guys get 8, 9, 10 carries a game. And so I think that's just really tough for him to walk himself into. But unlike last year, I think it's more possible this year than it was last year. Yeah, last year I didn't, I wasn't sure about that in terms of splitting the carries. I will say yes, just because I think he's going to be featured a little bit more. And I think we're going to be 
running into fronts that are better for us, more advantageous. And so maybe his yards per carry is a little higher and he'll be still fresh. Um, you're right. I don't think he's going to blow past this. Uh, and if he doesn't get there, he's going to get close, you know, barring injury or something like that. All right. So, uh, you know, we're definitely not going to have a thousand yard receiver unless something weird happens. Last year we talked about a 750 yard receiver. We said, definitely no. And I said, what about a 500? And we were uh, kind of, uh, you know, maybe we did. Van Jefferson, 503 yards. Could we see someone get to 750 this year? No. No, I don't think so. Again, until Mullen proves to me that he's going to do something different, uh, these are too difficult to go with. It's really important, I think, in life. So if you look at Allen, like, does the past predict the future? So if you and I flip a coin or we go to a roulette wheel, the past does not predict the future. It doesn't matter how many heads I flip in a row. The next coin, if it's a fair coin, it has the same shot, a one and two shot of being heads or tails. Makes no difference, right? However, that's not, Dan Mullen's not a coin or a roulette wheel. We have a long history of data, which suggests that he does not churn out thousand yard receivers, especially not when you have balanced talent like this. And when you've got an O-line that can't really be trusted yet, he's going to be more conservative. With all that being said, I just don't see that happening. I don't either. I don't think Jefferson is going to get even as large a share of the targets that he's got, as he had last year. I think he's going to have a six. I think he's going to be about where he's at. I think he'll maybe even high, have a higher yards per catch. But this feels five six hundred feels probably about right. Now he could get to seven fifty if we feature him as much as we did last year, and Frank's numbers go up. But I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, you got to find these yards from somewhere. Like not everybody's going to have. 700 yards. Okay, let's move over to the defensive side. Defensive ranking last year, you know, 22.2 points a game. That's like 25th in the country. Are we going to have a top 15 defense? I'm going to say yes. I think the schedule favors this. Okay. I think if you look at the offenses that we are playing this season, it's hard to find a lot of them that you say, oh, I'm really worried about that team, right? And I do think that uh, we're we're in a better position linebacker-wise in the 3-4, and that should make a huge difference, in my opinion, with how well we play defense, especially on third down. So I'm going to say we improve from last year. I'm going to say we do finish. I think right about 15 feels good. This I don't, I don't think this is an elite unit for the reasons we talked about, but I think given the schedule, given where we're at, uh, I think 15th or so is good. So I'll take I'll take the whatever side goes under that 50 over under whichever way it is <laughs> towards the towards the better direction. Yeah, I'm gonna say yes too, and I I think 15 is right there as well. Good job by me picking those numbers. Okay, James, uh, double digit sacks. Last year we actually had it. Play had 11. Does anybody get to that this year? I don't think so. I think that Zuniga and Play working together really helped each other out. I, I can't. It's really hard to get 11 sacks in college football. That's a lot. That is a big number, especially in a 3-4, especially when you don't have, in my opinion, a defensive tackle or a nose tackle is going to be taking on double teams and pushing them in the back. There's, there's a lot of reasons why I just don't think that's going to happen. So I'm going to say no no double-digit sacks here. I think we could have three or four guys with five-plus sacks, and I think that's how it will shake out. I, I, don't, I would bet the under on this and feel pretty comfortable. I'd love it for it to be wrong. Okay, lastly in this area – if they're going to name, they're going to give out the team MVP award at the end of the year, who are they giving it to? If the season goes really well, it's going to be Felipe Franks because that would mean we beat some elite teams. And I think looking at our roster, 
in all the other places you would expect them to, p- to compete, we can compete. The one we still don't really know is the quarterback. And so if we win those games, to me, it means the quarterback did it. Uh, of course, MVP awards are almost exclusively for quarterbacks. But I think especially this year with our team, Franks would have to win some of those games for us. And he would he would earn that. So if we truly had an MVP, it'd be Franks. If we don't get to that level in the season, does it even matter who we give an MVP award to if we have eight or nine wins and that's it? I don't think so. So I'm just going to sell out and say that if anybody gets it or it's worthy of a year where somebody does get it, it would be Franks. I like that answer. I like it a lot. Um, the other guy, I guess, would be P. Ryan if he had a monster, monster year. Had a ton of receiving yards, um, but Franks is the answer. Well, let's play floor ceiling. We played this with Tyler and JT. Okay. And uh, we got mainly just ceiling for them, and the floors were super high as well. The floor and the ceiling were yeah, the same? Yeah, they were the same, the same, right? The ceiling is the roof. So <laughs> what, what is your floor win-wise? And we're going to walk through the schedule later, but this is like a teaser. And then we're going to switch gears to talk about Miami. It's like a teaser before we go through our schedule picking. But give me your floor. What's the absolute worst case scenario? Again, there's like apocalyptic bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like stuff goes wrong. Not the whole team gets injured, but like a lot of stuff goes wrong. It could happen. What are you at? I'm seven wins. I think it could, you know, if Felipe is out, injuries to the corners, just stuff goes south. I think that's a very low percentage, but. Um, eight wins feels too high for the floor. Like if things go really badly, seven, you know, it's still bowl eligible. It's a really bad year, but it's not a four win campaign. So seven wins is, is, is me too. It's a great floor. Last year we were at five or so, I think is our floor. Yeah. Uh, and so to look at a two win improvement floor wise is, is big time. There's still a narrative here where that could definitely happen. I think it'd be a lot of close games. I don't think it'd be the wheel falling off, but you know, you're in the sec, you play a tough schedule that could happen. And again, worst case scenario. So JT, you're pulling your hair out right now because you're so frustrated to pick a seven floor season, but it could happen with injuries. It's possible. Again, if you look at a tier one team like Clemson or Georgia or Alabama, their floor is definitely not seven. It's, it's probably eight and a half, maybe even nine, nine. Yeah. Right. And that goes to show you that's kind of the difference from where we are. It's a good way to look at it. And then ceiling wise, and this is probably the more fun question. I right. think it's, it's obvious you're going to pick six, seven or eight is the floor, but ceiling wise, probably a lot of difference here. You know, what What do you have here? This is going to sound funny, but I mean, 12 wins is the ceiling. There's not a game on our schedule I look at as like, we have no shot to win that game. We played with Georgia last year. I don't know that we're going to have the consistency or depth to do that. But if everything broke right, no injuries at offensive line or corner or quarterback, we could win 12 games. Yeah, that's correct. I think Georgia, assuming we come into the Georgia game with a really solid record, maybe maybe only one loss, even right, we're going to be a, a single digit underdog at you know at at the, at the worst. That's a winnable game, certainly. And if you go into the SEC championship game, and that means you've beaten Georgia, and maybe you're a one loss team to Alabama, you may be a twelve or thirteen dog at the most. That's right. A, if you include the SEC title game, I would say we're you know, right. Still twelve. Wins. Still twelve. That's what I'm getting at. Still right. twelve. Right. And then you go to your bowl game where you play a team outside the SEC. It's probably close to you. So yeah, I think I think even if you include postseason, to me it's weird. It's weird. Twelve almost becomes the line. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. And that's why I liked you said it. I knew you were talking about the regular season, which is interesting. I think honestly you could go undefeated, lose to Bama, lose your bowl game, and, and be at twelve. I think. 13 becomes like so stratospheric for me with this team, with the flaws it has. I don't want to go there. Well, if you got to 13, then you're, yeah, then you're in the playoff. Right. And, and I mean, I, theoretically, you know, that's possible. Like in your example, if we, if we go undefeated and then lose in the SC title game, are we in the playoff? Maybe very well. Maybe it is a possibility. 
So I think twelve for me though. Twelve wins, twelve and two, or twelve and you know whatever. I think twelve wins is, is probably same. not quite as low percentage as seven, but it's close. I think it's I think it's similar, and I think that's yeah. why Vegas has us where they have us. I think we're very much a eight, nine, ten, eleven in the upside scenario win range. Twelve is is possible. It's possible in the range of outcomes. This is a possible, which is cool. Situation. Which is cool to say. That yeah, and that's not being homerish. Again, I think. That's not a homer answer. I think if you're looking at the math, and I think if you're talking to somebody in Vegas, there is a, there is a percentage that is very real. It's a non, you know, it's it's a it's a non imaginary number. It's a real number that this could actually happen, right. and it's not it's not that hard to even look at it. And we walk through the schedule, we'll look at it, and you can see for yourself that I think that there's narratives where if you're a neutral observer, you can find ways to make that happen. I love it. Okay, let's. You want to talk about Star Wars record, or you want to? Kick it on down the road here. No, no, let's let's kick. I think we've covered Stalvers' record, right? All right, we've let's kind of, do we've it. We've kind of gone through that, so let, let's let's get down to. Let's talk piece. about the Miami Hurricanes, the scummy Miami Hurricanes. James, you've looked at them a little bit. Um, I'll give you a, a little bit of data on them. They went seven and six last year. We went ten and three. We're seven point favorites. James, let's start with some kind of big overall questions before we get into like the real preview. Like what's on the line for you here? I think for the for Florida, a lot is on the line. Yeah, you don't want to say that your first game determines your season because it actually does not in college football. That's one reason why Saban likes to play these games right away. You can recover, but for where we are as a program, for the way we finished last year, yeah. for where Miami is as a program, this has all the makings of a game that's that's significant mm-hmm. for how we feel about our program as Gator fans. More on the line for us than that for them. I yes, think, for them, this is this is the game you want. If you're a Miami fan, this game for you is all gravy. It's all bonus. It's all good. You've got the coach you want. It's early on in his tenure. You don't expect to win this game, but if you do, then you're, you just feel amazing about yourself. Right. And if you're a Florida fan, you, you're left scratching your head. So one of those games where there's way more on the line for us than for them. And I think like we mentioned, and we're going to talk about more here when we get to the film, uh, there's a lot of intriguing matchups in this game that are going to answer some questions for us. So there is a lot on the line for this opener. Certainly, it's the the largest opening game maybe in Florida's history, at least in modern history. We don't play a lot of openers really ever. I mean, the Michigan game was the, pretty the big. The Michigan game wasn't like this game because we didn't really have, I didn't have, you didn't have expectations that that year's team was really going to be anything in particular. That was a, a bad game. But this is a team we think can do something against an in-state rival that means something, not right. Michigan. It's a recruiting battle against a coach who's, who's dead set on trying to get Miami back to Miami. This means a lot. We're only seven-point favorites. I think in most Gator fans' minds, that feels low. It feels right. like we're much better than they are. Uh, so there's a lot on the line. It's a big game, a lot on the line, a lot of pressure on us, not on them, which makes it more maybe nervy. Yeah, how but, nervous are you about this? Yeah, I think that I'm, I'm somewhat nervous. I think Miami's interesting, right? They they have Manny Diaz both years in a row that he's been there uh, with a team that had some talent. He's been there for three years, but two years. Top five in defense. Fantastic, fantastic defense. Um, he coached with Mullen at Mississippi State. Right. He, was, he was the defensive coordinator, which means he intimately knows everything Mullen likes to do. He's had the entire offseason to prep for it. He has three returning linebackers that have played all three seasons together. There's plenty of reasons why Vegas has this game at seven. Because if you just look at it in a vacuum very quickly, you think Florida's two scores better. But when you start to dig deep on this stuff and you get the knowledge, you get the understanding, you get the time period, you get the linebacking core they have, 
you can start to say that if Felipe Franks doesn't take a step forward, this game is going to be very close. Yes, and I think it could be a very low-scoring game. You know, if our offensive line is bad and their offensive line is bad, then maybe it's just kind of a coin flip there at the end of who can make a play, and that that's scary. So I'm more nervous about this than I think substitute Miami out for a comparable program. I don't know. Uh Virginia Tech or something like that, I feel less nervous about it. The implications, because this is a rivalry game, it's higher. There's more at stake to win or lose it. So, yeah, I'm a little more nervous than I would be with just some random team. Yeah, this game means a lot, which is why I think it's been a big ticket. It's why it's going to be a lot of fun. The entire football world, I mean, the world of football will be watching you, right? I was just in Milan, Italy, and my server is a huge American football fan. He's from Southern Italy, never been to America he loves it. But this is the only football game right, going on at that time slot in the world. If you're an NFL fan or you're a college football fan that counts and matters, this is it. Everybody's going to be watching. Everybody's right. watching this game. So you couldn't have more on the line than you do for this one. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Let me give you a little overview. We mentioned Manny Diaz his first year. He was under Mark Richt, left to take the Temple job, I believe. Rick abruptly resigns. They call him back. So, longtime defensive coordinator, very interesting guy in background. If you get a chance to read about him, Dan Enos, his first year as a offensive coordinator there. He's been at Arkansas under Bielema. He was the Bama quarterback coach last year, kind of stole him from Bama. Former head coach at Central Michigan, but he's new, obviously. Uh, I don't know how much credit you want to give him for Tua. Your mileage may vary on that. Blake Baker, their defense coordinator, his first year there, former at La Tech. So 11, 11 returning starters, six on offense, five on defense. We've got six and eight, you know, comparatively. Uh, interesting team. A lot of unknowns. A lot of unknowns. James, you've watched a little bit of the film, looked at them, you know, read up on them, did a little research. Tell me about what they're like on offense. Yeah, this is obviously a different segment than what you get on this podcast during the season. I think we're known partially for the breakdowns that Alan and I do about film and about walking through coaching theory and decisions. None of that applies right now. Right. Total unknowns. This is, these are unknowns. I can, I can look at what Dan Enos has done at Arkansas. I can look at what he's done elsewhere. I can look at the film there. Uh, but coaches, coaches change some. And I think already in Miami's playbook, they're, they're adding some RPOs some run pass options, which he never did before. There's things that will be different. However, most people remain the same. Right, So looking at the film of what Dan likes to do, knowing about his philosophy, he runs a pro-style offense, which is based primarily in the West Coast style. What does that mean for you? Pro-style means you're going to have a lot of eye formation. You're going to have multiple tight ends in the field. And your main goal is to generate big plays via play action. This is where the safeties come into play. Right, Two years ago, we had the same conversation. Can't get beat on play action. Spent all year long getting crushed on play action. Right, Michigan drubbed us on play action. Same thing here. Safeties have got to be smart and disciplined not to get sucked in. That is their primary avenue. So pro style, very dependent on the quarterback reading the field, making smart throws. Um, Can be some short throws to move the ball down the field as well. So, you know, in contrast to us running the spread, what kind of personnel are they using? I think the main difference you're going to see here, because he is a West Coast guy, and it's fair to say the West Coast is not that different from a spread offense in theory, because both offenses want to get the ball out quickly. The West Coast is a, is a much more complicated offense. Right. Uh, the running game is entirely different in a West Coast offense than a spread. And you I, don't see a running quarterback you in don't, a West Coast You offense. don't at all. He's a statue, right? You don't see that. So I think he's 
retaining the quick game principles. Quick game principles are where you don't take a drop as a quarterback. That's a that's a feature in, in, a, in a West Coast and a spread offense. You catch the snap by the shotgun, you stand still, you throw. Uh, so all these things are quick, which is good for them. Their offensive line, you know, will not be that way. Arkansas, when he had an offensive line that was decent, he had ph- not a phenomenal year. You may recall when uh, when the Arkansas was, was yeah when when Arkansas was like top two in both rushing and passing in the country. They were phenomenally good. So I think when he has talent, he can do it. But primarily, stopping any pro-style offensive coordinator like Danny Nose comes down to stopping the play action. That's the main key. The good news for us is and how we should defend them. Our base 3-4 defense is really built very, very well to stop these kind of offenses. It's almost perfectly built to stop this kind of offense. And so we're in good shape just by base alignment right there. Most importantly, Miami's offensive line is discernibly weaker than our own offensive line. That is a major crisis point situation for them. Unlike the older guys we have playing, they have a couple of freshmen playing. Um, They have bigger question marks on that line than we do. They also have a quarterback who will be making his first ever start who has thrown three passes ever. Surprisingly won the job over two guys. Surprisingly won the job over two guys who had more experience or higher rankings. All three of the guys on Miami are actually four slash five-star quarterbacks. So they all had talent. So if you're looking at what he may do, Alan, and the reason why I say without watching film, we don't know. We really don't know. This situation is unique. It's a game opener. He's got a quarterback he probably doesn't trust. You can imagine a scenario where he's probably not going to do some of the same things he would have done at Arkansas. So it's not perfect, but what matters is it is pro style, which means you expect a 50-50 run balance. You expect them to be more predictable. If you watch the NFL, they're much more predictable on first and second down. They'll change it up sometimes, but it's very much a game of let's get three or four yards, let's get in these situations. So I don't want to say, Alan, that Dan Enos is old school. He's sort of like moderate school. But if you if you look at like an Andy Reid or you look at uh, you know a Sean McVay, uh, those guys are sort of a Bill Belichick, right? Like very much game theory matchup dependent. This guy is not that guy. And he's also not, you know, a, a sort of an old school coordinator. He's in the middle, which is good for us, I think. Uh, he is known as a great quarterback coach. But again, I think too early in the curve for us to worry about that. So all in all, I think if you're looking at this on paper, our defense has what I would consider to be a tremendous advantage against right. the offense. Especially our defensive line versus their offense. And this line. is mainly where the spread is lying. Is The seven points is lying almost, almost entirely here. Most people are expecting this to be successful for us. I wish we had some film to know what their personnel, what this looks like. We really don't. Uh, Miami does have a, a, a excellent wide receiving core, much like we do. So very interesting that these teams kind of mirror each other somewhat. Right. Uh, there's a lot of the similar kind of weaknesses and strengths. But we have a a experienced head coach and they have a not only a new coach a first time ever head coach correct and we have an experienced quarterback and they have a first time ever quarterback so there's a lot of reasons to think this game could get away from miami but if it stays the way they want it to uh, expect a conservative game right their offense trying to steal plays on second down play action first down play action after a big run uh, if you've watched a lot of football you know what to expect from this if you're newer to the football game uh, if you're looking at a team like Miami, they're going to come with a game plan to try to steal points. So if they run the ball 15, 20, 25 yards, that next first down is a great shot for them to run a play-action deep pass and try to confuse somebody. Uh, and so that's what I think we have to avoid. So look for us. Look for our uh, you know, our D-line against their O-line to win, especially on early downs. If we win those early down battles against Miami, they're going to have an extremely hard time converting first downs. If they are successful on first down, Allen, this game could be different for them. They'll mm-hmm. have a shot to get big plays against us. If they are not successful on first down, it'll be a very, very long game for them. 
All right, tell me about their defense. Like you mentioned, their linebackers already. Michael Pingney, Shaquille Quarterman. They've a lot of snaps, a lot of veteran presence there. Lost some of their guys from their, you know, from their front seven along the defensive line. Uh, Gerald Willis, who Florida 